Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Beautiful. Do you do you want to lead us? Do you want to lead us in? Yeah, yeah. I wanna I wanna lead us in. This will be fun. This is gonna be a fun episode. I think, you know what, you know what, uh, wonderful co-ghost John and our dear listeners, I think we're going to have a relaxing episode today. Uh, uh, there's nothing tense or historically pertinent about today's episode. It's it's about as laid back as, as they come. We're going to talk about pretty colors. We're going to talk about uh, the fun. Oh, you know, it's Oscar season. We're going to talk about movies making movies. Or movies about making movies, right? Uh, uh, hashtag award season bait. Heyo. Uh, so let's do some celebrity gossip. How are you feeling today? How are you feeling today, John? Uh, you know what? I'm I'm feeling <laughs> I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. But I will admit, I will admit that currently uh, my house is entirely lit with red and blue lights. Um, oh, I'm sure it's fine uh, because. Uh, I'm sure there's nothing there's nothing to worry about. Uh I'm I'm wearing just color blocked clothing as well. Uh so I <laughs> I'm sure everything here is fine. Everything here is fine. And I'm excited. I'm excited. I think we're going to have a good fun time. Yeah, yeah, you know the a pizza pizza guy dropped off my lunch earlier today and he was wearing black gloves and I proceeded to uh drop my pizza pizza in sl- cinematic slow motion as red and green lights raked across me and the camera did a dolly zoom out in a very dramatic ta- take revealing me to be alone on an otherwise crowded city street uh i'm sure it's fine is, these, are, these are this... things that happen yeah absolutely absolutely uh should we should we should we try and contextualize all of this r- random nonsense that we've started with? I, I I think so. I think so. If you didn't, if you uh, somehow made it this far in the episode without reading the episode title, we are talking about Knife Heart. Uh, it is it, it is nineteen seventies uh, France. Everybody's hot. Everybody's got uh, all of all of all of the all of the boys have. Shorts with a five inch, uh, five inch shorts on, and uh, everybody smokes. It's that's 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 the vibe. That's the aesthetic. We're 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 feeling good. We're feeling good with this aesthetic, right? Like this is this is nothing can go wrong vibes. Yeah, nineteen seventy nine. We're talking about the movies. We're talking about Knife Heart and Ash. I would love it if you could explain what Knife Heart is about. The unconscious person doesn't move. Creating Gialli requires more than a black-gloved killer and raking lighting. A film needs an openness to the crossroads of sexual and psychic perversion. Gialli is the anxiety caused by the forceful collision of embodied and emotional desires, especially when those desires are a boiling over of our sublimated urges. Addiction, queer sex, trauma, pornography, and love's loss are all the perfect recipe for a giallo film. The black-gloved hand of a killer practically oozes out of this psychic substrate. Knifeheart is often referred to as a tribute to Gialli, but I find, it to be an, I find this take to be overly reductionist. This is not a mere nod. It's a queering historiography through the gaze of cinema. 
Cinema is the art of reconstructing experience through a simulated memory. Gialli thrives in ecosystems of anguish and tension. Queer history is primed for the emergence of such a stunning example of a near-perfect neo-Gialli film. Knifeheart does more than just open up the space of queer history and horror cinema. It queers the very notion of historic memory. Knifeheart draws some broad inspiration from real-life pornographer Anne-Marie Tensi, who was directing queer porn in the 1970s and 80s, right at the historic moment when the HIV-AIDS crisis was first being recognized. The response to AIDS was nothing short of an attempted genocide of queer communities. While the genocide failed, the grim reality is that the ethnocide was partially successful. Both international queer communities and local queer communities were cleft into two time periods. Queer elders were wiped out wholesale by AIDS, leaving us bereft of the most important tether to our own history. A stark example commonly circulated is the infamous photograph of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus from 1993. The image shows over 100 gay men with their backs turned to the camera and only seven facing the lens. The seven are the only founding members to have survived through the onset of the AIDS crisis. Seven out of over 100. Seven percent. No history can survive that level of population loss. Our black-gloved killer in Knife Heart is an echo of AIDS and so many more expressions of queerphobia and transphobia. Knife Heart is also a deeply hopeful film. At its climax, it becomes a story of community survival in the face of devastation. Knifeheart's giallo killer ultimately meets his demise when a lesbian lures the killer to a porno theater. The theater patrons are at first startled and afraid, but soon come to recognize their collective position. Alone, they are nothing but victims. Together, they are a force to be reckoned with. Their act of community self-defense begins with the phrase, get off on killing fags. The focalization of desire here is useful. This is a battle of desires, one genocidal and one liberatory. Explore the edges of these desires and these anguishes as we discuss Knife Heart. Indeed, yes. Uh, this is going to be fun. I'm excited about this. And I'm, I'm excited I, too. I think we should start, as we always do, uh, by gently, gently uh, stepping into the brightly uh, lit formalism zone. <laughs> the formalism zone. Let's talk about. Let's talk movies about movies. Let's talk because this is what this is. This is this is mm -hmm. cinema about cinema. This is. It is a uh, meta-cinematic Gialli. Um, and, and where are um, the awards? Movies about movies are just the, the most classic award bait. Yeah, I, I know. You know, did nobody, did nobody at, the, uh, at the Academy watch this in 2018 when it was released? <laughs> I would rather this win Oscars than the, the horribly sentimental The Artist. Yep, agreed. Uh, the choice is that choice is simple. This or La La Land. I know which one I'm picking. It's fine. <laughs> so, what do you make? What do you make of this then, as a movie that is about not just movies but making movies? Right. That. Oh, in, my, oh, in, oh my god! Oh my god! This this is Jolly La La, La La Land. <laughs> that, that's 
that's what this is. You're completely right. And I, I think you already flagged up one of the most important things for me. And uh, that's that this, all of those movies about making movies are just, they're, they're cloyingly sweet with their sentimentality and nostalgic gaze back to their, the, the early days, however we're defining those of cinema and uh, knife heart is not, not one of them. <laughs> yeah. There's this kind of like this, this whole idea of like movies about movies is about, it's there's a inherent romanticization and dehistoricizing element to that yes because it posits film as this kind of like a historical cultural mode of production mm-hmm. when in fact it's deeply historically mediated right this this idea of like the artist and the the shift from silent film to to talkies is inherently tied up with it like the studio system and exploitation of the of the labor that made cinema and its racial segregation and like the 70s cinema here, which is kind of like sleazy and illicit and pornographic, is not romanticized in the slightest. It's one of the things I actually really like about this movie is that it doesn't seem to think that there's a danger that you end up believing the projected glamour of the screen itself, right? But like mm. this is not a this is not a film. It, it's in some ways I think this is a film which is which is quite has a kind of slightly weird sense of humor. But I actually like the fact that it's deeply unsentimental. I, the, one of my favorite things about this movie is just how blunt it is about the realities of some aspects of cinematic production, especially in the context of pornography. I think it would be really easy to lean in either direction and either make it this kind of erotic, glamorous, uh, you know, you th- think of think of the Playboy Mansion and kind of that Hefnerian glamour. Or to look at the other side of things and just make it straight sleaze, you know, and make it a cautionary tale about libidinal urges and succumbing to vice. And this this movie doesn't take either path. This movie just lets it be incredibly human. And I think that it's probably the greatest strength of this film. And it's precisely because because it does that, that it's aesthetic. The it's what it understands is that cinema is not real. Right, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fall for the myth of. Doesn't fall for the trap of kind of believing your own myth, believing your own propaganda, because like that's what so many of these Hollywood films about films really are. Right, they're a kind of like self-justifying hagiography, but this is the maximalist aesthetics actually undercut any sense of this being quote unquote what it's really like. Oh, totally, totally. And like, I think even, you know, the movie, you know, as I mentioned in the praise, dips into some real historic elements and real historic uh, individuals, but it doesn't fall into the trap of lifting them up above life itself, right? Like this is not, hagiography is so the right word for it. So many movies about making movies are deeply, even, even ones that are, about terrible filmmaking i'm thinking of the ed wood movie right even that is a hagiography for ed wood even that is making ed wood out to be this kind of mythic larger than life thing when ed wood was just a kind of a weird pervert making his little movies and like some of them are wonderful some of them are not so good and like that's that's the thing that this film gets is that to to make cinema you kind of have to be a weird little pervert. <laughs> well, I mean, like, right? like I, yeah, I don't think that's a bad thing. 
Uh, no, because it's all about desire, right? Like, like film filmmaking at its core is about perversion and desire, right? All of those movies that are just nostalgic reflections on the the Stand by Me days, like th- th- those are perverse and masturbatory films that are are just feverish in how much they want to worry over the the physical objects of memory. And and this this movie is just taking similar perversions in different directions. I you described this in the notes as uh, Gialli meets Fantastique. Um, do you want to do you want to kind of should we flesh that out a bit? Yeah, yeah. So so there's there's kind of like Gialli's Gialli's cousin that nobody talks about nearly as much as Gialli is the French Fantastique. Um, and I'm thinking like the best examples of this are probably the films of Jean Roland. Um, uh, Jean Roland fa- yeah. uh, fascination being something that we should absolutely oh, yes. cover on, on this show. I love that movie. We need to talk about fascination. Any of his vampire movies, like absolutely. And I think the the Fantastique has its own very strong aesthetic qualities. Um, it doesn't quite have as strong or as universal of aesthetic points as Giallo. But this movie kind of merges the two, right? Because we're getting we're getting a lot of the hallmarks of Giallo. We we have our black gloved slasher killer. We have the psychosexual torment. We have we have obviously the uh, bright chiaroscuro color lighting. But then we have these fantastique elements as well, where we're starting to bring in a lot of like there's a lot of surreal qualities to this movie. And the fa- like Giallo is very stark in its meditations, right? Like it's often very grim. And the French fantastique. I think it, it opens a different door and asks us, or often asks us anyway, like, okay, well, what happens if the consequences of our terrible perversions aren't as bad as we think they are? Which is, in some ways, a scarier yeah. thought than what Giallo posits. The the fantastic tends to be more pastoral in some ways yes. as well. Yes, mm-hmm. less urban. Um, uh, yeah, more, more interested in the rural. And there is a kind of romance to it. Um, and I actually think that's an element of cinema's own self-belief right is the is the romance but that romance is not as it so often is kind of severed from its roots in this kind of libidinal and erotic desire mm-hmm. um and you know just just on a kind of like semi semi like just on a just on a on a on a observe ob- observant point i actually think the color blocking in this is just beautiful uh it just leans into vintage gialli lighting and color schemes in a way that is just so nice to see back on screen yes those those every frame of painting uh twitter and instagram style accounts um like the, this knife heart is a movie made for those accounts like almost every frame of this is is just this beautiful classic giallo still absolutely um you said you wanted to talk about the credits in this yeah so this movie this movie i think weaves the credits in to the text of the film in a way that's incredibly strong and the the thing that I, I wanted to bring up about that is we often treat credits as like the nutrition label of cinema it's it's the thing on on the back of the box of Tasty O's that you kind of look at sometimes or when you have to look at it 
but really what you want is the box of tastios you you want the delicious thing you you want uh, in a sense the object of desire and not the horrible reality of that desire thank you nutrition label zizek zizek <laughs> <laughs> in so many ways is kind of the nutrition label of psychoanalysis oh but, yeah this is true <laughs> uh i think that like so so the, the, these credits aren't like way over the top uh you know like like you see with some of the like quote-unquote imdb crazy credits stuff but they are pulled into the text of the film and because this is a film about making films i I think this is a reminder that that like credits are part of the movie you know like, like this is something we've talked about before watch watch the credits you know like i mean like half of them one like i watch a lot of terrible b movies and and some of the best rewards of those are watching the credits because yeah. you'll th- you'll see things like thanks to my pets PetSmart pals, or like like sh- shout out shout out to grandma for lending me her car, or or just like <laughs> like like no animals were harmed in the course of the making of this movie, but plenty of people were just just goofy shit. But yeah, beyond yeah. that, like it is a, a reminder of the labor that goes into cinema. It is part of the movie, you know. It m- much like the like if you read if you read a book on. A physical copy that's embossed with gold leaf and, and is made of some expensive leather and it's held in a special collections in a library you're, you're it's you're going to treat that as something nearly sacred if you read the same book at uh i don't know a train stop in the calder valley and a half molded copy hanging out of a free book rack it, it will change the context of reading it and credits function in a very similar way I also think it's worth pointing out that credits are part of the fantasy of the film itself, right? Mm-hmm. Good point. Uh, and the credit actually serves to destabilize the distinction, destabilize the non-participatory anthropology of uh, being a viewer. Horror operates on this, on this, uh, you know, the, the collapse of the distance between screen and audience. But it's like the credits are the, are the point at which friction gets in, in, instantiated, right? This idea where you can go, oh, it's not just the story that's playing out for me. This is something that was made, and it was made by mm-hmm. people like me. Yes, yes. I, I think that that is so... So And again, like not to keep repeating myself in a way, but like this is a movie about desire, right? All, all movies are about desire, but this is very much about desire, and like every everybody in the credits desired something here. The actors had their own desires. The writers had their own desires. People working on the set had their own desires. And and film is so much an emergence of all of these like potentials. It is the collectivized art form. Like there, there is no way to make to make a film truly alone. Like f- films that are made truly solo are an incredible rarity to have one person in the credits. And absolutely yeah. no one else. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, given that you've talked about kind of collect, we've talked about kind of the collectivity of production and we've talked about desire, we should probably talk about the big formal influence on this film, which is pornography. We should. <laughs> so what are, what are your pornographic takes today? Maybe that adjectival <laughs> phrasing was not appropriate in immediate hindsight. <laughs> Well, I guess I guess the kind of question is, what do you think about the ways in which uh, pornography is portrayed in cinema? So I think I think that like 
going back to what we were just talking about, I think cinema broadly fails the topic of pornography and sex work more broadly. Um, and the sex industry is, is, is an even larger sector of human existence, right? Like, because it's either, it's either glamorized as, as this thing that's, that's full of mysterious perverted sex acts and lots of money and, and kind of all of these other like dark succumbings to various vices or it's a, a cautionary tale of how the good will fall down the path of darkness and and because they chase their desires too far they will they will awaken in a hell of their own making when when in reality like a lot of a lot of pornography is just work for a lot of the people involved you know like it may be those things but those things can also be true of working in a mill or being a teacher you know, like like those things are not mutually exclusive, right? Pornography is just in a certain legal framework and how we've constructed it culturally today that necessarily pushes it to those corners. I think the thing that kind of troubles cinema about pornography is that the distinction between film and pornography is not one that is easy to make on aesthetic grounds. Because mm. like cinema, cinema, cinema will go... Oh well, you see the difference is it's not real, right? This is this is cinema. It's not real. But then, you know, uh a lot of people who work in in pornography will go in the porn industry will go, "Well, this isn't real either." Like this mm-hmm. is a performance. This none of this is not this is not a this is not real. This is again a a a embodiment and projection of fantasy and desire, which is in so many ways exactly what cinema does. Like, isn't the problem for cinema uh, the fact that, you know, again, this is a very Zizek point, but isn't the problem for cinema precisely that it does almost exactly the same things that pornography can do? You you are absolutely correct. And we have like a huge taxonomical problem when it comes to the distinction, if there is one, between pornography and cinema. And like you're you're highlighting a desire here, I think, is is super apt. uh, uh, for, to, to quote a first-time guest of Horror Vanguard today, <laughs> uh, J- Justice Potter Stewart from 1964 in the United States Supreme Court case, Jacobellis versus Ohio. Um, uh, I knew this was going to come up. It, it's 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 got a um, uh, the the the, fa- the famous quote uh, is uh, you know like you know, you can't define porno, but I know it when I see it. And and that that's the problem here is that the only distinction is desire. You know, there are so many films with like protracted depictions of of the, the most decadent sex acts you could imagine that we would never shelve next to next to Buxom Beauties Four or whatever, right? Like the most obvious porno you could imagine. And and like, you know, the the inverse is true. There's also porn parodies that don't necessarily succeed as pornos or even soft cores, girly movies. Like, like there are so many, like, this is so, such a complicated landmine to walk through. And it is that thing strictly because we're operating in a space solely defined by desire and desire moves too quickly to be pinned down. And I think it's not a coincidence that it's, that it's gay porn films, right? It's, Mm -hmm. it's queer desires that are the thing which are legally classified because this is not, as you pointed out, this is not a this is not an aesthetic taxa. This is not a formal taxonomy. This is a legal distinction. 
It's it's the policing and regulation of desire which results in some ways in the production of what we deem pornographic. Oh, ab- absolutely. One one hundred percent. So not to not to p- pivot us too hard, but how do you feel about the soundtrack to this movie? Well, I was about to say, we'll come back to we'll come back to uh the the porn uh we'll come back to the porn. We'll come back to we'll come back to the the, the pornographic film industry. But can we just talk about the soundtrack for a second? Because the soundtrack fucking slaps in this movie. It is so good, and I think it works because it's not attempting to parody Goblin and recreate a, a classic Gialli soundscape, right? It's it's doing its own thing. It's it's both influenced by these historic pieces periods, but also clearly modern, and it just makes it slap so damn hard. <laughs> Well, what I think is that, like, God, 2018, we were, like, that was still the kind of tail end of of Vaporwave. Mm-hmm. It was, like, there was there was this kind of hauntological quality to a lot of electronica and synthesizer music. Um, and that really comes through in this. So the soundtrack really does go beyond just being, like, a goblin parody. And not to, I mean, like, I don't know, why am I even caveating this? We are like a Mark Fisher fan podcast. But, like, it does remind me a lot of, like, Burial and Caretaker in the sense that this is an exploration of a nostalgic space, but it's also one that doesn't fall into the retromania trap, right? Yeah, this, is, this isn't like a chip tunes cover of a Metallica song. You know, it's, 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 it's a forward-facing historiography completely lost my phrasing there but it's 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 using the historic antecedents of the text of the film to create something new yeah yeah yeah. okay that's enough talking about things that aren't porno how do you feel about voyeurism (laughs) (laughs) um well i mean come on we should be we should be well used to this conversation about voyeurism because like why is it that people listen to podcasts right what what is Mm -hmm. it what is it that we that we offer to people. And I and like there's research that suggests that one of the things that people really like about podcast not just our podcast but podcasts <laughs> generally is this idea of like you get to just listen in on friends talking. Mm-hmm. There is a like, there is there is a there is a slight voyeuristic element. Uh I was thinking about our episode on uh Killing of a Sacred Deer, right? And yep. um in in a similar kind of frame our episode on Suspiria on the Suspiria remake from, I think, 2018, 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, the thing that I really like about those films is, uh, those episodes rather, is that they are essentially the two of us working out in real time how to think through the films from our particular points of view. And, it, and people get to listen in on that, right? You get to, we're, we are... To do a podcast is inevitably to be observed in some way, mm-hmm. even just even just as a sound wave on whichever podcast app is playing this for you right now. <laughs> um, so, like any kind of mass cultural production has an element of voyeurism, kind of baked into it, right? Oh, I, I completely agree, and, and and there's an erotics to this perception as well. You know, like like that that voyeurism plays with a a deeply libidinal tension, 
you know, like in, in some whether whether you're you're here right now listening because you find us to be grating and frustrating and our, our takes completely maddening um, and you're you're doing psychic combat with us as we speak or you're here because you're you have fun and you're agreeing like like there there is a libidinal gear that's moving there that draws us that draws us all in here and even us as the people producing this. Right. Like like those those voyeuristic tendencies are kind of inescapable in the production of media. And like we weirdly enough, like like Ansel Adams is something like like his work and his commentary on film is something that I think a lot about in this context specifically, um, because, you know, there is there is always one person in every photograph you ever see. And there's actually two. There's always the photographer and there's always the viewer, even a landscape devoid of, of anything human contains within itself those two individuals that implied voyeurism is is inherent to creating any kind of media and so much of this film it, being a film about films is about watching right uh you know it ends with an audience watching another film mm-hmm. uh lois is an editor um who spends her days watching the dailies and kind of cutting them into pieces um and watches her at the club with her new partner like so, so much of this film is about watching the film that it really reminded me of in quite a lot of ways is Peeping Tom, mm-hmm. like a classic British horror movie from the late sixties. Yeah, and this idea of like, what is it that the camera allows you to do? The camera allows you to be the unobserved observer. Hmm. I really, li- I really like that. Yeah. That that is that is such a good way to look at look at ah John Berger Berger is coming out of the walls I need to escape <laughs> dark ways of seeing returns <laughs> but no I, I think this is and and I mean like I, I think we need to, to to just kind of directly tackle one of the big formal elements of discussing Knifeheart and what is the thing that we're being voyeuristic towards in this film what is the thing that we're using our ways of seeing on. It's it's queer sex and queer pornography. That is a, a huge part of the literal runtime of of this film. However, you approach it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and wh- what were your thoughts? Um, um, again, besides like, besides lots of this being very hot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is a true part true part of this movie. Um, but even but even that even even in like like the kind of like jouissance and like the kind of like positive libidinal joy that could be drawn from this movie, I think it comes from its honesty, right? Like like when you're watching the kind of like pornographic scenes, you're you're very rarely seeing the what we what I guess we could call the pornographic element itself. Use your imaginations. Um, what we're seeing is the labor context of pornography. Right. You know, like, you know, the, the first kind of pornographic scene we witness there. there so there's there's kind of like a, you know, violent psychosexual sex scene that the movie opens with. Right. Um, but that might be the first pornographic scene, depending on how you cut this. But the first scene of a pornographic film being produced that we see is we, we, we see the director, we see the filmmaker, we see our actors, we see a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. And we, what we, what we witness is like them getting direction, right? Like it is, it is the nuts and bolts of producing this kind of cinema that we get to experience. And I think that adds a lot of humanity to, to this movie, right? Like, I think that this film walks a very difficult 
knife's edge, no pun intended, uh, kind of like tightrope line of eroticizing depictions of queer sex. And this is eroticizing them for the people who are in, involved in this labor, right? It's eroticizing them for that history rather than other films which are eroticizing it for a, let's say, a presumed heteronormative audience. Yes, I think that's true. And I think this raises the good question of like, what is the director for? Um, Ooh, this is a good question. And this, this, this seems like a, this seems like a kind of very silly question on the surface, but like the most commonly repeated line on the, on the set is what? It's just one word. It's cut. Mm -hmm. And there are all of these uncomfortable parallels between like the cut of a knife the cut of the guillotine mm -hmm. in the editing suite, the cut of scissors, the cut, like, if cin cinema is about the manipulation of time and desire, right? So it's about the manipulation of time in order to create desire. And de desire is inextricably bound up with the cut, the point at which um, the self cut, like, transfers to the other, the point of movement. That's where you make the cut. So the way that I was thinking about this is like, there really isn't a singular director. There is a director function, right? Mm -hmm. We have a, we have a film director being portrayed by a director, right? So this is not just, this is not just meta textual, meta cinematic cinema. There is a meta director at work, not just on the desires that were shown on the screen, but really what those desires are supposed to invoke in us. Ooh, absolutely. I love oh, that is that is a fantastic take. Okay, end the episode here. Uh thank you, everyone. Um <laughs> but, and no, I, I think you're totally right, too, because there are there are some directors who are the tyrants of their set, right? Think of Kubrick as a good example of that. And and they will do whatever it takes to execute their vision of the movie, regardless of who they hurt or or, or what they do to to make that thing happen. And then there are other directors like um, from what I've seen, the behind-the-scenes stuff of literally all of his movies, uh, one Rob Zombie, uh, who's open to feedback from the people that he's working with and who wants to execute the best movie possible, even if that means like, oh, like the, you know, like the director of photography actually has a better idea, or the costuming people have done something way cooler than what I was thinking of. Like, let's let's put those ideas in because we're here to make a great movie. And, and I think that. That, that that really speaks to your point that like you know we we have this kind of like monolithic vision of what a director is when in reality like it is it, it's a function it's a process and there are a lot of ways to kind of achieve that process yeah absolutely absolutely it's i, I you know it's quite a it's quite a sort of like Foucauldian attitude towards the director but really it's a way of trying to kind of decenter the text from being the production of a singular individual and becoming instead mm -hmm. a a tool and process for the engagement of certain flows of desire. And I think your 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 comments too about like how we talk about the production of cinema, right? Like I find those to be really interesting. You know, because even even when you're working with digital stuff, you're you're cutting your clip, you're pasting, you're copying. Right. We still talk about reels of cinema. We still talk about film, the word film. You know, even if you're shooting on digital, there is no film anymore. The actual film is gone. Um, we still talk about frames. Um, frames are still there. But the the idea of a frame, even the, the visual language of cinema is still rooted in the physical technologies that constructed it. 
Um, and even like if you want to make your your online movie more cinematic, you add film grain, you add cigarette burns, like, you know, you you put you restore these physical components back to it. And it's, yeah, it's I was I couldn't help but wonder watching this, like, how did they get this the cigarette burns in this this 70s mm-hmm. film that they were showing? How did they get those? And I was like, did they really did they did they did they were they projecting when they see yep. some of uh, Anne's film, were they projecting something that was shot on on a, on, a, on an old? No, they, of course not. This is it's about you know it's about color grade, it's about post production, it's about effects. Mm. And I'm like, I I I'm sort of fascinated by the idea that maybe someone in the in the VFX department had to be the one to go in and create these artificial cigarette burns to make this old to 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 create a, a historicity that cinema itself no longer has because the means of creating cinema have become entirely ahistoric. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I literally have several After Effects effects for cigarette burns specifically and tons yeah. of film grain, <laughs> uh, re- reels ending, reels breaking, like, all all kinds of, like, v- tons of VHS stuff. Like, there, there are just heaps of this out there, and it's all really interesting and really useful right like and and part i have such complicated feelings about this stuff because part of it feels like it feels like we don't admit that cinema is digital right that we're using digital technologies it feels like we still have to lie to ourselves because the desire is for film not for digital cinema because i don't see a lot of movies playing with the fact that what they're creating is a digital film or a digital movie you know, like there, there are very few people using like how digital files break down, right? How digital files collapse. What happens when you push a digital file too far, right? When you, when you really want to show the physicality of media, you don't do those things. You add fake cigarette burns. You know, you, you go one way instead of going the way that actually reveals the physical nature of the project that you're working on. But on the other hand, adding in cigarette burns playing with you know film grain and things like that that is a way to it's it's really really i mean like there you you can definitely buy 16 mil today and like yeah, 8 mil absolutely. and 35 and shoot it on retro tech that hopefully works but like it's dwindling and it's gonna keep dwindling you know like that's just the way it is and kind of adding these things back in is a weird way of keeping that history going well, as we wrap up the formalism zone, it falls to me to say that if you would like to help us preserve the old <laughs> technological ways of podcasting, you can do so through horrorvanguard.com and at patreon.com slash horrorvanguard, where you help us artisanally craft our entirely analog digital podcast. Um, and by supporting for just a few dollars a month, you get access to bonus episodes every month. You get early access to everything that we put out and a host of other cool things, including access to our Discord, where you get to suggest films and talk about your favorite episodes with everyone else who already supports the show. So please do think about uh, helping us keep going by uh, chipping in just a few bucks a month at patreon.com slash horrorvanguard. Hell yes. Honestly, hey, I, re- look I really that. like an that actual, one. An actual slick plug. <laughs> that was that was good. It was very honest. It wasn't just a. It wasn't just one of my like weird jokes. I, I liked that one a lot. 
<laughs> hey, give us money. Have you thought about that? <laughs> really, really honest. Be honest about your desires and give us a cup of coffee every month, right? <laughs> but um, so let's speaking of desire um, and our, our shared some a desire we share with our audience, a desire to explore cinema on a deeper level. How do you feel about kind of cinema producing desire? Well, I mean, this is what it is, right? And this is maybe something that we don't necessarily admit until we come across a film like this, which is so explicit about the nature of film itself. Mm -hmm. But like, I really do think something like The Artist or La La Land is a really good comparison. Um, The Artist may be even better because it, it sublimates actual libidinal desire for this kind of retro pseudo historicism this sort of like cloying inescapable nostalgia that oh films were better way back when um Mm -hmm. but like i actually think i actually think we don't want to admit that that's what film is uh mostly because i don't think we we want to culturally reckon with what that says about the desires that are being kind of responded to that are being produced by cinema like I think if you are, <laughs> there's there's the joke that goes around that like crude Marxism and crude Freudianism will explain like eighty percent of popular culture. And I think that <laughs> number is conservatively a little bit low. But if you accept cinema as a machine for the production and manu- for the manufactured distribution and channeling of desire, uh, part of that kind of re-territorial constant flow and re-territorialization of desire, then I'm like. What does what does the Marvel Cinematic Universe say at the mm-hmm. level of desire? And that should make anybody deeply uncomfortable. Oh, one one hundred percent. And and especially how, how our desires are kind of metatextually constructed through cinema and not just by cinema. Cause because I think, you know, like the, the crude Freudianism, crude Marxism is totally appropriate when discussing, like, oh, how does cinema manufacture our desires? But like, why why is it that Disney feels that they can churn out just the most laughably bad superhero movies? And even even if you're fans of superheroes in comics, you know, at a certain level, with like especially like the recent Ant Man release, like you've got to be like, okay, they're doing a disservice to the things I like, and like that. Like, how are our desires kind of architectured around these monolithic corporations? It's it's horrifying. And your statement about uh, movies that that display the gold, quote unquote, the golden age of of making movies, right? Like, we we can wax nostalgic as long as we want, but the horrifying implication of that is that we do not live in a time that's worth it. We're not making art that's worth it anymore. We, we how many how many generations fail now how many artists just don't matter because what was what we did in the past was just better and if we let, let's just accept that I, yeah i disagree but let's accept it for a second like okay why and that immediately has redress back to marx yeah absolutely and like it's sort of a joke but like again a crude marxism and a crude basic <laughs> freudianism Explains so much, right? And again, the 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 Zizek quote is entirely opposite here, which is like, cinema cinema doesn't doesn't show us a desire; it shows us what to desire or how mm-hmm. to desire. Absolutely. 
Uh, but but there are also objects, right? The uh, points of transference at which desire is kind of like uh, uh, moved around, um, and I think that's what this film does really well, um, and it does it in a way that is that doesn't kind of like doesn't allow queer sex and desire to remain on simply the level of the pornographic, right? Mechanical and projected onto the screen, but actually. I think there's the that distinction between eroticism and, and pornography that's useful here, where it's like there is a uh, a way of presenting not just desire but pain on screen, which I think is important mm-hmm. to talk about. I, I think you're totally right. I mean, this is this is a queer movie full of queer sex and queer love and queer pain. And I think when we usually when we see queer pain in a movie, it's for it's being displayed for a presumed heterosexual audience right and it's these very tropic depictions of queer suffering where it's it's you know like oh well like okay they they finally admit their feelings for each other and then one of them instantly is killed by whatever's in the movie you know like like that kind of thing like the second they can be open about being queer some horrible tragedy befalls them and subsumes them back into this kind of heteronormative discourse right it, it returns queerness to the marginal it it puts pain as as the center of it pain is the thing that can be depicted by the other right because the other is presumed to be in not just in a state of suffering but a thing of suffering a thing desirous of that suffering and you see this all the time when conservatives start talking about li- literally any oppressed group right when conservatives are talking about black Americans, when conservatives are talking about women, when conservatives are talking about the queer community, people with disabilities, like literally anything like, like they're, they're focalizing this, this deeply perverted and deeply weird desire both to create agony and to focalize agony because happiness, happiness would undermine all of their arguments. And I think this movie, this this movie really finds interesting ways to explore queer pain in cinema without kind of falling into that trap. I mean, I think I think the inescapable thing here to talk about is uh, is AIDS, mm-hmm. right? Uh, this is a film set in the late seventies, right? AIDS is not that far away, if not already present in the queer communities of the time, right? Desire has desire and self annihilation and death and illness and pain are all of these things which are intimately embodied. Right in 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 human experience generally, that's obviously true. But I think in when desire is uh, kind of ostracized and made into this kind of illicit thing, uh, I think I think you have to you have to it becomes a, it becomes kind of much more kind of like loaded and complex, and there becomes so much greater risks associated with it because desire is also a kind of it's a limit experience right and one of the great limit experiences as well is death mm-hmm. oh absolutely what do you absolutely. think what do you think what do you think about this in the context of like the aids crisis i i think this fits in with like you know jarman's blue right like it, it fits in with all of these other movies that are like powerful explorations of aids in the queer community but because th- this is a movie about living with an intractable pain Right. Like like and the only way to kind of move through that is to share it with a broader community. Right. This isn't something that any one individual can shoulder. 
and I think that that contrasts really strongly with how, I mean, like, so like AIDS kind of starts to get globally recognized in the early 1980s, um, you know, give or take a few years, depending on where you are. So this movie is right before that moment. This is like the final year of, of a global queer community being able to exist and function without that worry, without that psychic strain. And, and to see the, the, the kind of like, you know, like we can read the black gloved killer in this movie as kind of a metaphor for AIDS, right? Um, very, very easy, very kind of low hanging fruit with that interpretation, queer trauma more broadly, perhaps. Um, but, but how it's handled in the context of this movie without it being like a movie directly about, you know, the AIDS crisis is just like, it's again, one of the strong suits of this movie is how it's kind of balancing both a historic moment and a kind of like future. Well, I mean, isn't that, isn't that the nature of love? And like, oh yeah, here we go. In, in, in so many ways, this is, this is a film that's explicitly about love, right? Uh, you know, that's how the film opens with this sort of like, <laughs> what, what I really, I really kind of love about this film is that it's so unafraid of making Anne this figure who is so, like, almost painfully undignified, right? It's like the worst breakup of, like, just, just, just kind of being torn open by the absence of something, um... And it's like, is it? There's this incredible. This is like the two uh, Anne and Lois have these incredible conversations about love, these incredible kind of furious arguments about love, and this this idea of like, what does it, what does it mean to love? And to love is always to be, uh, always, always necessarily to be aware of its contingency and its its finitude, right? Love is this weird paradoxical moment of a kind of opening onto the infinite this idea of the, the self becoming greater in its own self like self emptying a kind of kenosis where you find yourself in the other but like this is it's an experience that is so temporally limited that, that feels both infinite and then when it's gone there's this kind of infinite emptiness to it Ooh, ooh that is so I really, really like that reading, especially because, you know, kind of like one one of the great lessons of the last hundred years or more of queer history now in, in Europe and the United States is, is not to be hokey, but it's the power of love. You, you know, like we're, we're currently at a moment where like a diagnosis of HIV AIDS is very serious, lifelong. It, it's not to be taken lightly. But we've got prep, you know, like that—that that is a history-changing medical invention, right? Like, like that—that that is a way to manage the unmanageable, and and to give new hope and new context. And like, it is—it's through a—I mean, like, I can't. This is so hokey, but it's like through this great act of love that we're able to arrive at these technologies in these moments, right? Like, like this is this is like Alan Badu again. Like, love is this tenacious thing. That, that, that can weather destruction, right? It's what makes us last through to this moment where we can actually breathe again. I mean, like, yes, it is it is undignified, but, like, love is undignified. Yes! Oh, totally. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's inherently, it's, in, like, l- like, love, especially a kind of erotic love, it's inherently 
undignified, right? <laughs> because it it involves a kind of colossal act of self vulnerability. You have to kind of like pull your pull yourself apart for another person, and it's uh, of course it's in, it's in incredibly it's in, yeah it's hokey. It, to love is to be cringe. um but at the same time you're right it has this kind of deep well of genuinely revolutionary political possibility right uh the 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 heroes like prep didn't just happen it happened because of the the countless countless unknown and unnamed heroes and people like uh the the generational movement of act up and this idea Mm. of a kind of genuine militant politics that was powered by love but love is also this kind of like dangerously possessive force like that is is annihilatory and that's that like genuinely uh awful moment between Anne and Lois where it ends with Lois like running away in fear um so I I think like does like to talk about to talk about desire is 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 necessarily to talk about kind of love but I think sometimes you know, post Deleuze, we're all very we're all very comfortable talking about desire, right, and flows of desire. But I still think that the great unnameable desire is that of love. Ooh, I really like that point. I really like that. So, um, I, I, God, this is twice now where I'm like, ooh, we should just end the episode on that because I mean, like, what's better than what was just said? Um, but. Uh, I think there's there's one last thing we need to talk about. And it's kind of the climax of of our movie. <laughs> yes, let's let us. Let's, this film has got maybe the funniest cum shot I've ever seen. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just two guys like blowing absolute ropes. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's just. <laughs> Uh, I, I love it. It's got a great sense of humor. But yes, let us talk about the climax <coughs> yeah, no pun of the movie. Yeah, I mean, uh, what do you think? What do well, you think? I was gonna, the, the, the part of the there's kind of like there there's a classical structure to this movie because there's the climax where we catch and defeat our killer, and then there's the denouement. Um, and during during the climax where we stop the killer, I think it's it's so important because as I said in the preci, like it's it's this black glove phantom. Who, who we learn is kind of the mystic resurrection of queer trauma, right? Like it's, he's not, he's, he's closer to Freddie and Jason than he is to the standard giallo black gloved killer. Who's usually just a guy, right? Like a guy who's really good at stabbing. Sure. But a guy nonetheless, like this guy is mythic, right? Like our, yeah. our, our killer is, is one of those eternal embodiments of, of evil and destruction and pain and and no one individual is at all capable of stopping him or fending him off or winning. But the thing that ultimately wins is this entire queer community in a porno theater banding together and, and realizing that in a larger number, they they win. They just they just win together. But this this killer won't even wouldn't even come to know who they were without cinema. Right, and so it's it's and cinema that acts as a kind of memory mm-hmm. for this for this slasher killer, this idea of like illicit desire and its punishment, because really that's what the trauma is based on, right? It's based on uh, falling in love with the the beautiful farm boy uh, and then being <laughs> hor- horrifyingly punished in the kind of casual violence and homophobia that is 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 still 
all too part of queer experience. Um, but it's like, this is the sort of utopian element of memory because yes, it is in some ways the perpetuation of trauma, that which is projected out on the screen, but also it ends with the slasher killer dying right in front of a cinema screen, right? Like this is what memory is, is reprojectable. And, uh, f- you know, the film can always be re-edited. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point to, to, to close this out on. Uh, do, do you have any parting, parting thoughts on today's episode? Uh, it's really good. I was, I, I, I didn't really know what to expect, but I've, I've, I, I have left it, left watching this film, like really just kind of like, yeah, what a great time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you everyone for uh, joining us today for our discussion of Knife Heart. Uh, we look forward to, uh, pun here, seeing you in our next, uh, seeing you. We know we cannot see nor hear you. Uh, sorry, voyeurism doesn't work that way. Uh, <laughs> goodbye, everyone. Stay spooky. We hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.